Well, good morning. Over the past several weeks, we've been going through a study that I've been calling face-to-face, and we've looked at some of the face-to-face interactions that Jesus has made with individuals during His earthly ministry. So far, we've taken each of these examples, there's only been two, in two parts. And so we looked at Nicodemus in John chapter 3 over two weeks, and then we looked at the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 in two weeks. This week... I am really going to try to look at Jesus healing a blind man in John chapter 9 in one week. But honestly, I think we're going to have to see what happens. The reason I've been focused on this study or these these individual interactions, these these one-on-one interactions, is it's so easy to think about Jesus' earthly ministry and to think about the swaths of people, the crowds of people that, that gathered around him and even followed him for, for many parts of it. And still, in light of that, there's so many instances of Jesus pausing to look at an individual. At Denver Street, my personal ministry, I try to follow that same model. I would love to see our community impacted by the gospel and the proclaiming and the preaching of the gospel that takes place here on a Sunday morning. But I know that real ministry doesn't take place in corporate sessions of worship. Real ministry takes place at an individual level. The discipleship model given to us in the Bible is not one of of public teaching and lecturing. It is one of relationships, building relationships, doing life with one another, and learning from each other. As we navigate the world and we apply Scripture to it, it becomes more rich, it becomes more meaningful. I say all that just to kind of express how incredibly important I think these asides are. Well, this morning, as we look at Jesus healing a blind man, we not only find one of these face-to-face interactions, but we find one of the miracles that takes place in the Gospels. I want to make a quick note before we begin looking at this, though, this morning. If if you go to the end of the Gospel of John in, in John chapter 20, verse 30, the Apostle John, in writing this record of the Gospel, summarizes everything that he has written so far with a purpose statement. Now get this. God wrote the Bible with a purpose in mind that we would come to a place of knowing Him. In fact, that we could even know Him at a different level. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this gospel record, says, John chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. 
It's always incredible when we come across these miracles, or these miraculous events, and, and we want to ask all of these questions. How did it happen? Why, what's Jesus doing with this? And in fact, we're going to discuss some of that this, this morning as we begin our study. But in light of Scripture, using Scripture to interpret Scripture, there is a purpose behind John recording this event. This is a miraculous event, but it's one of many. In fact, it's not just one of many that we can study in the Bible. It's one of many that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry, including those that aren't even recorded. It's given to us as a testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done so that we might believe. That in believing, we might have new life in him. Think about this morning as we approach the question the disciples are about to ask Jesus. As we dive into the Word this morning, before we look at our section of Scripture, let's pray that we might have understanding. Our Father in Heaven, I thank You so much for Your Word, for this church, and for this, this, this time that we've set aside this morning to study Your Word. Lord, I, I know I'm not ignorant of the fact that we come to worship with, with burdens in our life and things that are pressing on our minds and on our emotions. and God, this isn't the time for that. We've set this time aside that we can worship you. And I need your help. We all need your help, God, that we would set aside those distractions. School's coming up. God, help me not to think about that. There's things we're dealing with at work. Help me not to think about that. There's people that I'm worried about, that I love, that I know need me. God, help me, help me not to focus on that right now. Lord, help me to study your word, to look into your inspired word, to learn from you. And God, as I look to it, God, I, I ask that you would open my eyes. Humbly, God, I ask that you would open our eyes that we might see the awesome truths that are found in your scripture. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. With your Bible open to John chapter 9, please read with me. We'll be reading the whole chapter. The Bible says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, 
The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents, of whom of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how now he sees we do not know, nor do we know how who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him had heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, 
your guilt remains. Oh, this is an incredible interaction that's taking place. It's stirring up trouble. The first thing we'll notice is that John's record or John's gospel isn't necessarily a chronological account of Jesus' earthly ministry. He writes it with a purpose that we might know things. He tells us that in John chapter 20. And so we find that the very beginning where this all starts or where it plays out in, in verse 1, we find as they were walking along, the ESV says, as he, was, as he passed by, as Jesus is walking and just doing his earthly ministry, he, his disciples, they come across this man, we find out in verse 8, is a beggar. And he's blind. I want to look at the interaction that the disciples have with this event. Because you see, sometimes when we study the Bible, we fall into the same trap. I want to say something and then I'm going to have to explain it. Our application is more significant than our comprehension. Sometimes we study the Bible and we find spiritual truths, nuggets, things that are interesting to discuss and to learn about and even build upon. Just like the disciples. They're walking along and they see a blind man and their, their question is about sin. Well, let's pause for a moment. Let's talk about sin. This is an interesting concept. This man has a flaw, and, and I, my understanding is, is such that I believe that when bad things happen to people, it's a consequence of sin. And so, um, teacher, you're God. Who sinned? This man was born blind. Who sinned to cause this to happen? It's so much easier to discuss an abstract subject like sin than it would be to minister to a concrete need in the life of a person. Look at Jesus' response to this. The disciples have asked him a question about sin, and Jesus, he almost disregards it. He says, you asked, did this man sin or did his, did his parents sin? You see, the Jews at this time, there was an understanding that was being taught. One of, the, one of the things, it was possible for a baby to sin inside of the womb and to come out with such, um, such a handicap, especially in the first century, is to be blind. The disciples who had been living life, with uh, living life with Jesus, they were more interested in discussing this abstract concept, this intellectual comprehension that they might build upon than they, were actually minister than they were to actually minister to the physical and concrete needs of a real human who was begging on the side of the road because in the first century he had no other option. Jesus' response. It was not that this man sinned or that his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I want to pause for a second. I want to talk about this. We have an understanding that bad things happen in this world because we live in a world wrought with sin. 
this is a very real problem. I think about the applications of this. I, I know that there's people here this morning who have been going through difficult times. There's people that have lost loved ones. There's, there's people that are, that are struggling to find their bearing, to even... I'm not stupid. I, I know that there's people that are struggling to have faith. This man was born blind. How could God do this? This is a real problem that we come up against in the world. Bad things happen and people have questions. Unfortunately, as a Christian, we have some answers. But there's no formula. There's no mathematical equation that allows us to point to the cause and effect relationship between sin and the world. The disciples here are trying to find some sort of formula. They turn to their teacher, Rabbi, who sinned? Brothers and sisters, it's important that we understand this. We have faith, and, and so we have some, some explanation. But when we go out into the world, when we leave this assembly and we enter the mission field, we will come across people with real problems in their life, asking the same question that we ask why? Why has this happened? Why has this man been born blind? Why have you taken away people from me who did not live a full life? Why have you left me on this earth to deal with this affliction? There are some that ask these questions who say that they do not believe in a God. Even they say that they don't believe in a creator. I'm interested in this. These people that say that the fact that there's evil in the world or present in the world is evidence enough to say that there is no creator that exists that loves us. They still ask the question, why? Think about that for a second. It's a logical argument that they, that they present, that there's evil in the world, that there's not a God, at least not one who is loving. It's very logical. And we could sit and we could talk about that, but I think it's more interesting that the people that say that, when faced with affliction, say, why? If you really believe that there's no creator, that, that's a futile question. Could it be? That inside of all of us is born a moral capacity? That God created inside of us an understanding of something bigger than we are? That God born into, uh, into man and creating him in his image and understanding that causes us to say that there is justice, that we must ask why? Isn't it true that by asking why, we're acknowledging that there's something bigger than us, that there's some purpose? I've said that there, there's no mathematical equation for figuring out why sin exists. In fact, in the case of 
This man who had been born blind, it wasn't his sin, Jesus says. It wasn't his parents' sin. There was no causal relationship between these people and the physical malice that he was experiencing. We live in a world that is wrought with sin. The consequences of sin are sickness. But that doesn't mean that the sickness that we experience is a cause, is the effect of our personal sin. That may not be a sufficient answer to explain why bad things happen. But it is as good as any answer that is out there. And the Bible says it is sufficient. Now I pause there and I want to note that Jesus didn't get distracted by this question like I did. Instead, Jesus moves on. He says, you're asking the wrong question. The real question isn't about sin or why are we bothering to figure this out? We're wasting our time. Look, we've been placed here to minister to these people, to literally take care of their needs, to serve their needs. And here we are. I have been sent by God with the purpose of doing the work that he sent me to do. And he's placed this man in my path now for this purpose that I would do something. That I would minister to him. And so Jesus spits. Man, I don't know. That just makes me excited to think about the, the God who was present at the beginning of the creation. The same Jesus who, who ascends into heaven and sits at the right throne of God here on earth. The Son of God spits. It's kind of gross. It gets grosser because then he takes his spit and he mixes it up in the dirt. He makes mud. He takes that mud and he smears it onto the man's eyes. That's interesting. If we look, this isn't the first blind man that's been healed by Jesus. You notice his method's always different. He's always mixing his method up. In one instance, he simply lays his hands on the man and, and he can see. Here he does, this is incredible, he spits it, he mixes mud, he rubs it on his eyes, he tells him to go and wash it off. The reason Jesus does this is so that no one would get distracted by his method. Quit looking at the method. He did it because he was God. He had the power to do it because he was God, because he was divine. But here we are. Look at the questions that everyone asks in the rest of the chapter. How did this happen to you? How did, how did you come to a place of being able to see? Pause for a second because I didn't really transition well. I said our application is more significant than our comprehension. The disciples had a decent comprehension of spiritual things and they were interested in that of sin. 
Jesus points out the application of your understanding is more important than your comprehension. If you know about spiritual things, but you do nothing about it, what good is it? Application is more important than comprehension. Second point, our investigation depends on us asking the right question. Everyone here is investigating this miracle that has just taken place. This man who was born blind is now able to see, and they're asking all of these questions. How did this happen? How did this man Jesus heal you? And we ask the same question. Why did he spit in the mud, and why did he send him off? We could look at it and, and make some interesting comments about it, but I'm, I am going to try to get through this entire scene this week so unless we want to come back and talk about the blind man being healed next week we've got to move on like jesus moves on how did how did this happen i want you to look at the instances of interrogation that take place the blind man comes back to the same place that he was where people have seen him all his life be born blind now begging and they say is this not the same man they say well it couldn't be he was blind. Some people say, no, it's not him. He just looks like that blind guy. Others say that it is. And the man, he keeps saying, I love that, kept saying, I am the man. He wants people to know who he is. I'm the same man that was blind. I can see. Here I am. And the question they ask next, how were your eyes open? How were your eyes open? The question that we ask matter. The right question is not how. As we see as we get to the end of the chapter, the right question, just rearrange the letters, is who. The right question is who. You see, this sign that had been performed is one of the hallmark prophecies that the Messiah had come into the world. This is a marker of the messianic age. We look in Scripture, we find that the, the fact is, and Isaiah prophesied this, that when the Messiah comes into the world, that the blind will be able to see, the, the sick will be healed. And look what's happened. A blind man can see. Not just that, but this is even more remarkable. Make note, the argument that the blind man makes whenever he's visiting with the Pharisees, he says, I'm not just a blind man who lost my sight in the course of life and was healed. I was born blind. And now I can see. Literally, my brain, what God, how God designed me, the, the occipital part, the part of my brain that is able to register images into meaning has never had input. Uh, this is remarkable if you really think about it. This guy's brain has never experienced sight. It has no comprehension of what it means to see. And suddenly he can see. There are instances of godly men in the Old Testament, prophets, Elijah, Elisha, being able to perform miracles and, and, and do these sorts of things. This is even bigger. This man was born blind. 
I want to... As this man goes through the ringer, being investigated four times by the neighbors, and then the, the Pharisees bring him, and then the Pharisees bring his parents in to, to cross-examine and, and provide validity to his own testimony, and then they bring him again. The third time they bring him in, they actually put him under oath. That phrase that, that means um, give glory to God is a, a Jewish phrase which in the courts was like swearing somebody in under oath. And so they, they have this fourth exchange, which is my favorite, because this blind man, he's spicy. I, I love his interaction with the, the Jews. He has quite, a, quite, quite a, an attitude. And all this while, they're asking the wrong question. And we see in the course of this, faith actually begins to be developed in the man who was blind. First, faith is seen in that when Jesus tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, that he goes and does it. But you see, he's asked, who is this man? What, who do you say he is? And, and we see a development. First, we see this man is a prophet. It's verse 17. Develops beyond that. Now he's not just a prophet, but he's a man of God. Develops beyond that when the man finally interacts with Jesus and we find he is the Son of God. His comprehension grows because in this interrogation, being asked the wrong questions, he starts looking at the right question. Instead of asking who, he starts to ask. Instead of asking how, he begins to ask who. He begins to ask who. He begins to see how significant it is that he has been healed. How significant it is that these signs have been performed. And he puts his trust in God. Something to note about the Pharisees' approach here. At this point in Jesus' ministry, there's already a great amount of conflict building about this prophet and this teacher. He's performed miracles on the Sabbath. He, he's, he's wrecking the way that we were supposed to do things. And we notice the Pharisees, for the most part, these Pharisees are cautious men. And they're, they're trying to understand these signs that have been performed, that these are learned men. They should know about the signs of the Messianic age. They should mean something. They should be significant. And still they won't ask the right question. They're cautious. I'd say they even consider themselves conservatives. But if we really look at what they're doing, they're manipulating this investigation to ask the wrong questions because they aren't really conservatives. They are preservatives. A true conservative takes the best of the past and uses it, but he is also aware that new things that God does and that God uses these new things, that new grows out of the old. Being conservative is, is more than preserving because a preservative simply embalms the past and preserves it. They are against change. They resist new things. They fight God in what he is doing. I 
I don't want to be a preservative. I don't want to be a preservative. It's easy to pick on the Pharisees. They're the antagonist in this narrative. They're the ones that are causing problems. It's easy to pick on the disciples. They were so dumb. They were hanging out with Jesus. Why are you asking the wrong questions? But if I was there, if I'm honest with myself, I would have asked the same questions. I wouldn't be interested in helping a blind man. Man, Jesus, why is this guy blind? Why does evil exist in the world? I'm really interested with that question. It's a sin to do work on the Sabbath. Jesus is doing work on the Sabbath. He's causing problems. I don't care about these signs and wonders. I'm going to turn up. I've got an unknown bias to myself. I don't even see what's clearly presented before me. I'm going to ask how. When it's so obvious, I should ask who. Don't we have the same problem today? I don't remember where this comes from. I think it's from a movie. But I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what biases I have. I don't know what kind of preferences I'm willing to defend over real submission to the cross. I consider myself a conservative. Because I believe what the Bible says is true. But is my understanding of the Bible more important to me than what the Bible actually says? Where in the Bible does it say that church should be on Sunday? Or on Wednesday? Or at 6 p.m.? Where in the Bible does it say that congregational preaching is the only way that we should learn from the Bible? Where in the Bible does it say that ministry can only be taking place inside of a building that is ascribed for that purpose? By the way, I'm making all these up in the go. I didn't, I didn't put down a list of illustrations in my notes this morning. I could think of a hundred more. But these are things that we hold dear to ourselves, isn't it? Where in the Bible does it say that we should sing from a hymnal? It's easy to pick on the Pharisees, but it's just as easy if we're really honest about it, to see ourselves in their response. I don't want to be a preservative. I want the Bible to be interacting with my life and changing me. Because when I adopt a set of rules and I approach faith as a set of rules that I need to learn and understand in a bigger way, my application gets thrown throughout the window. Look, we're back to point one. When I ask the wrong questions and it's all about defending what I already believe, I'm not actually being changed. 
I want this to mean something to me. I want it to speak to me. I want it to cause me to worship every day. I want it to cause me to sing songs that maybe aren't written in hymnals. I want it to make me shout for joy from the bottom of my heart. I want whenever I sing for it to be so filled with my love for God that it is pleasing to Him. I want to be able to see spiritual things with so much zeal and so much passion that it is causing every bit of my life to be transformed, my relationships to be transformed. Even if, even if I'm a, a curt personality and I like to stir up trouble because I think it's funny, there's a problem with having a baby face. No one takes you seriously, and so sometimes we make jokes that, that make people laugh, and then we sit back and we go, but I wasn't joking. I have a baby face. I struggle with this. That's not the right way to treat people, is it? Especially when they don't know that the joke's on them. I, oh, man, it's awful. It's awful. And I, I've struggled with it less over the years, um, maybe. I don't know. You, you guys will have to be the judge. But I... Really, seriously, that's not the right way to treat people. I want God to transform the way that I interact with people. Take away my insecurity of having a baby face. No, seriously, take it away, God, because it's, it's causing me to tr treat people in a way that's contrary to the way you treated people. God, sometimes I'm curt with people because, well, if I'm really honest about it, it's because I don't care enough about them to make sure that they hear what I'm saying. I want them to do what I say. God, I want you to help me love people the way that you love them. Take away my curt mouth. Help me to be humble. To actually believe that maybe somebody who I'm talking to has something to say to me that is worth value for me to listen. God, I, I want to be interested in what people say because if I only listen to the answers to the questions that I ask, I might be being a preservative. I might just be interested in getting to my point. Our investigation depends on asking the right questions. The last point this morning, our confession should have no limitation. When the Pharisees were investigating this event, yeah, they were asking the wrong questions. They brought the blind man's parents in. And they were trying to build validity. Is this really the guy that's blind? We don't believe it. Is he really blind? Is he really your son? Yes, he was really born blind. Okay, um, how did that happen? And they've already, it says, the scripture says that they've already decided that anyone confesses Jesus as Christ would be thrown out of the synagogue. This is significant. To be thrown out of the synagogue meant that you were cast out of society, essentially. It was excommunication. Maybe even with family and relatives. This would be costly. 
I mean, think about it. If you're cast out of the synagogue, even outside of the synagogue, why should I do business with you? Shouldn't, wouldn't it be better for me to do, somebody, do business with somebody who's in the synagogue? This could have financial implications. This could be a big deal. And so the parents refuse to answer this question. They say, he's of age, go and ask him. They go and ask him, and he says, here I am. I was blind, and now I can see who did it. It's Jesus. Who do you say that he was? Well, he's a godly man. You say that he's a sinner. Look, the Pharisees have already... In- I love this. They're, they're so biased to what's actually being presented before them, they already start to poison the testimony that they're eliciting. They swear him under oath. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Right from the beginning, they've already said, this is our presupposition. We're going to stick with it. If you say something contrary to this, we've already said that if you say that this is the Son of God, if you say that this is the Christ, if you confess him, you are not going to be in the synagogue anymore. There's consequences. Here's his response. Well, You say that he's a sinner, but how would I know? Here's what I do know. What he did could only be done with God's help. It could only be done through God. They keep pushing, and they love it at the end. Why are you asking me so many questions? Do you want to be a disciple of him too? And that's when it's over, isn't it? He says, you know what? You're a disciple of this man. You were born in utter sin. You have nothing to teach us. The way that John records this is significant because Jesus came into the world to heal physical sight as a testimony of his own authority from heaven. But he teaches us something much bigger, isn't it? We see this man progress from faith, from, from, from not knowing who Jesus is. He says, I don't know where he went. I don't know who he is, other than he's a man that they call Jesus, to confessing that this is the man, that this is the Son of Man. What a transformation in this, in this short little scene, this short little interaction. And when Jesus comes to him after he had lost everything, he's cast out of the synagogue, Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answers, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he confesses, Lord, I believe, and he stops and he worships. And Jesus explains that it was for judgment that he came into the world for those who do not see that they may see and that those who say that they see that they may become blind. Pharisees hear this. Are you saying that we're blind? If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. We're going to go in a circle this morning. The Pharisees said that they see spiritual things, that they're able to investigate this miracle, and still they refuse to face the truth. And because they say we see, their guilt remains. No one is so blind as he who will not see 
the one who thinks that he has all truth and there is nothing more for him to learn is the blindest one This man was born blind, but he ends this chapter seeing more. He's born blind, but he's able to see spiritual truths. He's born blind, and he's able to confess the good shepherd. There's lots of questions that we could ask about spiritual things. Lots of inquiries that we could launch. There's great sermons we could listen to. There's great stories we could read. There's great Bible studies that we could take part of. Not one of them matters if we don't make application from it. Real spiritual health in a church, I don't think can be measured by how many people show up, by how much we're growing, by trajectory, by financial prospects, by any of that. Real spiritual health in a church is measured by one thing. When people leave from hearing God's word, how are they changed? By what degree? Does the Bible matter enough to you to actually be transformed? I love being a member of a church, being able to study God's word, being able to see God's people, being able to see people grow. It's so discouraging when we think that we know it all. By the way, I'm preaching to myself. Would it be better if I turned around? You don't know it all. And even if you did know it all, there's still growth. There's things that you need to work on. There's things in your life that you have to surrender to God. There's burdens that you're facing that you need to let go of. God is bigger than anything going on in your life. I 100% guarantee it. He's more powerful than any obstacle you're coming up against. What do you need to give up? Do you have a crass personality? I really am preaching to myself. How do you need to ask God to let you give that up? Are you afraid of church membership because you've been hurt by people? By the way, the Bible is pretty clear. We're called to be a member of a church. Have you been a Christian for 20 years, but you haven't done an individual Bible study in the past, I don't know, 20 years? Open up your Bible. Do you have unknown biases to yourself about how the church should work 
or how faith should work, that you need to give up so that you can be involved in the work that God is doing. 